There are no small number of opinions about who God is and what he's like. And there's no small number of error. And so we want to tread carefully. There's a sense in which there is danger in what we're about to do. That God isn't a, a creature or a subject to be examined in the way that we would maybe examine a table or a chart and dissect it or learn of it, exhaust our knowledge of that thing. Now, when we study the doctrine of God, we have to reverse our thinking. We've got to think in different ways about God than the way that we typically think about anything else. And that is to recognize that we're entering into a study on the first and the greatest of all beings. Our task is to receive by faith what has been revealed about God by God. That's why Scripture came as Article 1, and now it follows with the doctrine of God. If Article 1 is the principle of knowing, how can we know God and all things in relation to God? Then Chapter 2 is the principle of being. How do we understand who God is and who we, and who we are and of what this creation is in relation to to God. So we have to be very, very careful. It also means that we don't want to dispute over it, to wrangle over various philosophies and get caught up in the weeds because the doctrine of God is, in a sense, incomprehensible. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. The minute that you and I think that we grasp God, we exceed God. The minute that we think we have figured God out, we have, in effect, circumscribed God with our own reason, and that makes us bigger than God. And that is idolatry. And so the danger of the doctrine of God is that we might exalt ourselves. So we need to avoid the scriptures, for instance, as a kind of science book where we cobble together all the information that God gives us about ourselves, exhaust it, arrange it, put it, in, put it all in its logical relationships, and then think that we, have, that we have in some way or can in any way exhaust all there is to be known about God. And so it's dangerous territory, subject to pride, subject to error. Well, tonight we're going to consider three paragraphs in the chapter. Paragraph one, as you notice in your outline on the handout, is concerned with the one true God. We're going to consider that paragraph in two specific sections, that is, God's incommunicable attributes and his communicable attributes. We'll define what those mean here in just a second. Secondly, we want to talk about God's external relations. How is it that God relates to his creation? How does his creation relate to him? And we're going to consider five main truths about God. His independence, his sovereignty, his knowledge, his holiness, and his due. What God is due by virtue of being God. Thirdly and finally, we'll consider God's internal relations. That he is one God, but three subsistences or persons, as the Westminster Confession put it. Why do they change it? We'll get into that. We're also going to talk about his relative properties and his personal relations. How do we think about this one God in three persons and their relationships to one another, while also affirming that each person is fully God, such that God cannot be divided in any way? Finally, we'll see its spiritual application. I just want you to consider for a moment just some of the language as to why this is worth our study. In chapter 2, <clears throat> it shows us, for instance, in paragraph 2, what our responsibility to this God is, what it is that we owe him. That is, we owe him worship, service, obedience. And yet this is no great burdensome worship for those who know the one true God in Christ. No, in paragraph three, this doctrine of God revealed to us as Trinity 
says here is the foundation of all our communion with God. There is no other God to know than this God. That our gospel is a triune gospel. It is the working out of the triune God to save for himself a people for his own glory. But not only that, it is for our comfortable dependence on him. And so it is a practical doctrine. What I want to do is consider that first chapter first. Chapter 2, paragraph 1. Read along with me. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. I want you to notice that this chapter begins with the doctrine of God's self-existence and his self-knowledge. God alone knows what it means to be God. Everything that comes after this introductory statement at the beginning of chapter 1, or rather paragraph 1, flows out from this essential truth, the self-existence of God, or to put it in more formal terms, the aseity of God, that God is say of himself, independent. And all the doctrines that we're going to consider flow out of this most fundamental doctrine. And as we consider this, we need to consider at least two aspects of theology, things that are going to be noticeable as we study it. That is, we need to consider that there are two kinds of theology. There is what theologians refer to as cataphatic theology or positive theology that is stating in positive terms what God is like in his godness. That's the harder way to do theology because God is incomprehensible. But another way, the most common way for finite creatures like us to do theology is what's called apophatic theology, A-P-O-P-H-A-T-I-C, that is negative theology. That is beginning with what it is that we know as finite creatures, we understand God in his godness to be in an altogether different category. So if we are, positively speaking, mutable, that is, we're able to change, then God must, in a negative sense, be what? Immutable. If we are passable, that is, we can suffer, suffer change, then God, negatively speaking, or apophatically, must then be impassable. And so you're going to notice as we go through this first chapter that it's an exercise largely in apophatic theology, that is, of negative theology, of describing what God is not according to his word because we as finite creatures cannot positively describe what God is like in his godness unless God reveals it to us that way. And so that negative theology is does not theology. A couple of important additions, though, you're going to notice side by side. I've stuck the Second London Confession right next to the Westminster Confession. And so much in that first main part of the paragraph is not included in Westminster. So here we are almost 30 years later. The Second London is expanding the first paragraph of Westminster, adding what the divines considered to be more specific and accurate and precise language, specifically, if you notice in the bolded language there, the doctrine of God's self-existence. 
that the Lord our God is but one living and true God. His subsistence is in and of himself. He's self-existent, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, that he is in every way infinite. All of this was added in addition to the Westminster Confession, and almost all of it, word for word, is taken from the article on the doctrine of God from the first London Confession. And so not only is the second London showing its agreement with Presbyterian brothers within this broadly Reformed tradition, but is also showing that that first London Confession was in no way an heretical document but that they are in line with what they have always confessed to be true about God. They weren't once heterodox and have now, thanks to other Puritan confessions, become orthodox. They have always been orthodox. And yet, after 40 years of theological considerations, they're able now to articulate the doctrine of God with greater precision. And that's what happens whenever error and heresy is about is it forces us to become more precise in the way that we describe God from his word. And so there's some important additions. The Second London Confession is arguably more precise and it's certainly more expansive in this first paragraph than its Westminster grandfather. Well, what we're going to see is at least two things. We're going to see in this first paragraph God's incommunicable attributes and we're going to see God's communicable attributes. His incommunicable attributes are going to be all of those attributes that go all the way down to every way infinite. About halfway down. Do you see it there? Every way infinite. And as incommunicable attributes, the way that theologians refer to this language is those attributes which God does not share with his image bearers. They are unique to God himself in, in how they describe his godness. So to communicate something is to share something, it's to give something. His communicable attributes, on the other hand, are those attributes that he does share with his image bearers. God is most holy, and yet we can be in some way holy as God is holy. Does that make sense? And so he communicates these perfections to us, not perfectly, but in a way that we are able to faithfully image in some way, in a finite way, who this infinite, all-holy God is. And that's the way this first paragraph can be organized, is through incommunicable and communicable attributes. Consider these first handful of attributes as incommunicable attributes. It says, first of all, that he is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. That phrase right there, without body, parts, or passions, they're all related to the doctrine of divine simplicity. We're going to talk about that in two weeks. We're going to spend a lengthy amount of time talking about the doctrine itself. But to say that God is without body parts or passions is to say that God is not a composite being. He's not a corporeal being. As such, he cannot be divided into parts and he cannot suffer change in any way like we can. He is a most pure spirit. That there is no mixture of any imperfection in him whatsoever that he cannot be encompassed by anything visible. He cannot be seen unless he himself chooses according to his will to make himself seen. And even then, it's only but a glimpse of who he is, whether through a vision or through some kind of theophonic appearance in a cloud or a pillar of fire. Or, as you remember, Moses being hidden in a, in a rock, only able to look at the back of God. So God reveals himself, makes himself visible, but it's only a reflection of his glory revealed or reflected in created things. Those things not being God himself, but a reflection of the glory of God. But it raises a question that 
question of passions, what is it saying? Does that mean that God doesn't have emotions? Well, the way that the confession uses this language of passions is slightly different than the way that we use the language of passions. We use passion in the way that says we're passionate about something. And that's close to the meaning of what we're talking about here. But the better way to think about it is that it, that God cannot suffer. So when we are approaching Good Friday in that Easter week, we refer to it as what week? The Passion Week. It is the week of Christ's suffering. And that's what's implied in this language. That to suffer is ultimately to undergo change. It means that you can be so acted upon by something outside of yourself that it produces change in your very being, in who you are. And so when the confession says that he is without passions, it's saying that as a result of his self-existence, being independent from creation, nothing in creation can so act upon God whatsoever that would induce any kind of diminishing or addition in God whatsoever. It's an extension of his immutability. He is unchanging. And so he doesn't suffer in this way. Now, in many ways, when we grow passionate Our passions, our emotions are, in fact, mutable, aren't they? Our happiness or our sadness are all often dependent upon external stimuli, aren't they? When somebody treats us badly, it makes us sad. When somebody treats us well, it makes us happy. And in all of these ways, we are in some way dependent on that which is outside of us to respond in the way that we do, to be who we are in those moments. Well, not so with God. God is in no way dependent upon his creation to be who he is. And that's really good news because it means that when the Bible says that God loves us, it does not mean that God loves us insofar as we act upon God in such a way that keeps him loving us. He loves us because he is in and of himself love. He is ah-say independent, and as such cannot suffer at the hands of anything outside of himself to be diminished in any way and to become something other than what he is. He is impassable. Well, we also see a next set of perfections here, that God is the one who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto. John Owen said this, he is not seen, not because he cannot be seen, but because we cannot bear the sight of him. The light of God in whom there is no darkness forbids all access to him by any creature whatsoever We who cannot behold the sun in its glory are also too weak to bear the beams of infinite brightness. He is in an altogether different category. He's not just a bigger, better version of the best kind of human. He's altogether different. He is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, and almighty. And I've already alluded to it. To say that God is immutable is to say that he is changeless. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But he's not just immutable, he's also immense. God fills every place. No created thing can encompass God. Rather, God encompasses all things at once. And he is also eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. And he exists outside of and apart from time, time being a created thing. And so if God is independent, the doctrine of God's aseity, his self-existence, means that God cannot in any way be dependent on anything that is not God in order to be God. And if God has created time and time is not God, then God cannot in any way be dependent upon time to be God. So when we talk about God being eternal, we don't need to think about it in linear terms as if in the way that we think about our own existence, we are trapped inside of time, dependent upon time. Not so with God. God is outside of time, cannot be encompassed by it. He is eternal. 
But he's not just eternal, he is incomprehensible. When we say that God is incomprehensible, what we mean is not that we cannot know God. It means that we can know God truly, but we cannot know God fully. We can know him truly, but we cannot know him fully. We cannot know God as God knows himself. The Godness of God is incomprehensible to us. So think about it this way. The Apostle Paul, as we saw in a passage last week, 1 Corinthians 2, what does he say about the Spirit? He says, who can understand the will of a man unless the man reveals it to us? In other words, you can't understand the essence of a man, what the, what the manness of a man is unless that man reveals it to you. Well, the same with God. And he talks about the revelatory work of the Spirit and illumining us to the truth of God. But then he makes this statement, 1 Corinthians 2. He says, only the Spirit searches the deep things of God. What does he mean by that? He essentially means that to us, God is incomprehensible. We cannot reason our way to the knowledge of the true God. And even in the Spirit's illumining power, we can know God truly, but we cannot know him fully. Only God can know God's godness because we are finite and he is infinite. He is incomprehensible and he is almighty. That is that his strength is without limits. And that language, without limits, is ultimately captured in that last clause there. You see it there? In every way infinite. That clause summarizes all of the all of the perfections that preceded it. To say that God is infinite means that he is beyond measure. He is without limits. You can't put a ruler onto him. He is without days. He is without measure. He is without years. He cannot be limited in any way. He is infinite in regard to place. That's his immensity. He is infinite with regard to time. He's eternal. He is infinite with regard to knowledge. That is our knowledge. He's incomprehensible. And he's infinite with respect to power. He is almighty. In other words, in every single way, there is no limit, no way to measure whatsoever God's perfections. This is who our God is. Any God that can be circumscribed by our own reason as if we can somehow exhaust him or figure him out. Beloved, that is no God worth worshiping. Our God is not a bigger, better version of the best human we can imagine. He is beyond that. He is in a category all to himself. And yet, that being said, God in his kindness, as our creator, has made us in such a way that some of his perfections might be reflected in us. And that's what we refer to as God's communicable attributes. That he is most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. That word most is superlative. It means utterly or absolutely. And notice here that he is first most holy. That is that his moral majesty knows no bounds. He is most wise. God knows all things. And he does all things according to his infinite knowledge. Such that all that he wills, he does perfectly. And he is most free. There is nothing in all of creation that can resist his will or hinder his actions. He does all that he pleases, the psalmist says. God is most absolute. That language of most absolute is the idea of, has political overtones. It's language that would have been used of the monarch of the day, of that one that was most absolute in his sovereignty, the one who is most absolute in his being or in his office as defining what the nation is to be, the one against whom all other things are measured. 
One theologian, James Dolezal, says this. It, quote, that is God being most absolute, means that no principle or power stands back or alongside God by which he instantiates or understands his existence and his essence. In other words, when you and I say that something is absolute, what we're saying is that we measure other things by that thing. When we say that God is most absolute, what we're saying is that he is the most absolute absolute, such that there is nothing outside of God by which God measures himself and under, and for the sake of knowing himself. He is the most absolute absolute, the most absolute ruler of creation. And as such, all that he wills, he does, and all that he does brings him glory. But we also see here that he's most loving. He's most gracious and merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. I want you to notice something. That superlative most ends at loving and then picks up again with his justice. And I think we're to understand these two sections as summary sections. One dealing with God's love or goodness, and the other one dealing with God's justice. So everything that follows loving in the paragraph, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek, all of those modify and describe what it means for God to be most loving. In fact, even if you were to just look at those individually, each one of them is lovely, isn't it? Grace is lovely. Long-suffering is lovely. Mercy is lovely. And yet when we take all of these together, they are not just lovely, they are powerful. Insofar as they describe the one true simple God, it is calling us to adore him and to worship him and to find our comfort in him and to rest in him. That these are the perfections of the most high God in heaven. And this is what his elect know him as in Christ. And yet for all those who are guilty, that is who oppose God and reject his gospel, he is most just and terrible in his judgments. He hates all sin and he will by no means clear the guilty. God is good to judge sinners. And so here we have at the end of the first paragraph a description of God's attributes, describing who God is in himself. And yet when we get to the next paragraph, though, what we find is an exposition of God's external relations. Okay, so now that we've said what we've said about who God is in himself and that God is who he is in himself without any help whatsoever from that which he has created, that which is not God, remember, God does not need anything that is not God in order to be God. All that God needs to be God is in and of himself, such that all that is in God is God. So if that's the case, how then does he relate to that which is outside of himself? That's the subject of the next paragraph. Read along with me. God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, or you could read it this way, having all life, all glory, all goodness, all blessedness in and of himself is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He alone is the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, and upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. 
His knowledge is infinite, infallible, independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all of his counsels, in all of his works, and in all of his commands. To him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, obedience, as creatures they owe unto the Creator, and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. We're going to see five things here regarding God's external relations. First, we're going to see that God is independent from us. Then we're going to see that God gives everything to us. Thirdly, we'll see that God is sovereign over us. Fourthly, God knows everything about us. Fifthly, God is distinct from us. And from these five things follows a sixth point in application. That is, God has a claim upon us. I want to consider each one of these as we go. First, God is independent from us. You can see that there in the paragraph, beginning with God having all life, glory, and goodness, going all the way through manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. That before creation and on into eternity past, God has had life in and of himself, John 5. That God not only has all life in and of himself, but he has all glory in and of himself. Creation reveals God's glory, but can't add any glory to God whatsoever. So when the Bible commands us to glorify God, it is not commanding us to add something to God which God does not already possess in infinite measure. It is simply to respond in an appropriate way to who he is in himself. He has all glory, but he also has all goodness in and of himself. The goodness of creation prior to the fall, as good as it was, added no goodness to God. He declared it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, but not because the goodness of creation added any blessedness to God, but because God made it good, which leads us to the next point, that God gives everything to us. That if God is in and of himself the source of all good, then he did not create anything as if he needs that thing. He is not a God who creates so that he can be loving, as if he is... A lonely God from all of eternity. No, God has existed in perfect relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity, in perfect love, always having a subject and an object with regard to love. Which means that when God created, he didn't create so that he might have something to love. He created everything out of the abundance of the love that he possesses as Trinity. And as such, the love that he shows in creation, the blessedness that creation enjoys, the goodness of creation, is really just a radiation of the love of God, which has been in and of himself for all of eternity. All that we have that is good or lovely comes from God himself. God gives everything to us. He alone, it says, is the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. God is in no way dependent upon his creation, but every molecule in creation is dependent upon God, such that Christ upholds it by the word of his power. There's not one molecule that can squirt out of existence without the sovereign say-so of our creator. And yet his creation can in no way change God or make God who he is. He is the source of all things. Well, not only is God independent from us, and not only does God give everything to us, but God is also sovereign over us. Because God doesn't need us to be God, and because God created us for his glory, and because we were made to be totally and utterly dependent on God, God then has the right, as our creator and king, to do whatever he wants through us, for us, or to us. If you want to write down some verses that you can look at on your own, Daniel 434, Psalm 115.3, Psalm 135.6, 
Proverbs 21, 1. Romans 9, 19 to 23. God is king, we are not. As king, he can do all that he pleases, and he cannot in any way be thwarted because he is most free and most absolute. Not only is God sovereign over us, but God knows everything about us. It says, in his sight, everything is open and visible. The fact that God is sovereign over everything is seen in the fact that God knows everything. One cannot be sovereign over everything if he does not know everything. God's sovereign dominion means that he knows all things and nothing is hidden to him. Everything, even that which is invisible to us, is visible to God. We read also that his knowledge is infinite and infallible here. Not only does God know everything that could possibly be known, that is, he is infinite in his knowledge, but God never misunderstands what he knows. He cannot err in his knowledge. He is infallible. This not only means that God's knowledge happens to be without error, but that it's impossible for him to err. How is it possible? How, how can that be true? And it's because God's knowledge is rooted in his independence. He knows all things in and of himself. He is not dependent upon his creation to know anything, as if we teach God anything. Think about the implications this has for our prayer lives. When we pray, we don't pray to God as if we are somehow telling him something that he didn't know, making needs known to him that he was previously ignorant of. What does Jesus teach? Your father knows everything that you need before you ask him. Well, if that's the case, then why do we pray? Because prayer is a means of grace given to us by God, whereby we might grow more and more dependent on the independent God. That we might conform ourselves more to the fact that he knows what's best for us and we don't. That prayer is the most fundamental posture of recognizing that all good things come from God. That he is the source of every good thing, not us. And so we go to him with thanksgiving, praising him and thanking him, dependent upon him because he knows what we need. But also, not only does God know everything about us, but God is separate from us. Why can we trust that God's sovereignty will work for our good? Why can we trust that what God knows cannot err? It's because of what the confession says here, that God is absolutely holy in all of his plans, in all of his works, and in all of his commands. God isn't like us. Everything God designs is holy. And everything God does is holy. Everything God demands is holy. It is permeated with his moral majesty such that it is entirely pure. It is unstained and unmixed with sin or darkness or error. He is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Finally, God has a claim upon us. Because all of God's plans, works, and commands are holy, there can't be any objection from his creatures whatsoever. It says here, To him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto their creator. And whatever he is further pleased to require of them, four things that we owe God. We owe God worship. We owe God service. We owe God obedience. And we owe God whatever else he requires from us because he's the king. I love that. The confession's hedging its bets at the end because it knows the human heart, doesn't it? Thinking that we can in any way enjoy a kind of libertine freedom from God where he's sovereign over one part of our life, has say-so over certain aspects, but that we're sovereign and we have say-so over other aspects. No, he is sovereign and, is, and deserves all of our worship, all of our service, all of our obedience, and anything else whatsoever that God in his sovereignty decides to require of us and we can't object because he's God and we're not. We don't in any way make God who he is. So what is the main point then of this second paragraph? If the first paragraph is all about who God is in and of himself, 
his perfections, his attributes. Then the second paragraph lets us know that God is who he is, not because we in any way add anything to God or diminish God, but rather we are totally, utterly, perpetually dependent upon the God who is dependent upon nothing to be God. That leads us to our third and final paragraph, God's internal relations. So we just saw God's external relations, how God relates to that which is outside of himself. But now we consider God's internal relations, how it is that God relates to himself. It says, in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and the Holy Spirit. Of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, that is, he is unbegotten, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning. Therefore, but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and our comfortable dependence upon him. And so when, the, when paragraph three says this divine and infinite being, what it means is everything that we just saw in paragraph one. This is the one true God. And this one true God is not three gods, but there are three subsistences or persons. That phrase, subsistences, is describing there are three persons, so to speak, who each possess the full essence and substance of the one true God. That's why it says down there that he is not to be in any way divided. This is arguing for the simplicity of God, which we'll consider here in a couple of weeks. It's to say that the Father is truly God, the Son is truly God, the Spirit is truly God, and yet the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, and the Spirit is not the, the Father or the Son. That they are distinct in their persons, and yet they each are truly and fully God in God's Godness, in His essence. Why is this important? One of the reasons why this is so important, just as an aside, is because there are two ways that modern evangelicals do theology. We do theology from above and we do theology from below. This is especially related to the doctrine of Christ. But we do the same thing with God. That we don't start with God's perfections and then understand his actions in light of his perfections. We start with God's actions instead, mistakenly, I think. And we read his actions back into his perfections. And so we see what God does. We see anthropopathic language, that is, that is man-like emotions described of God in the scriptures, of God relenting and repenting, of changing his mind, or anthropomorphic language of God having a mouth or ears or hands. But we know that God cannot have a mouth, he cannot have ears, and he cannot have hands because he's a most pure spirit and he is without body. So it's language that is meant to get down on our level to describe how God is doing what he's doing in light of who God is. It's, John Calvin said, it's God lisping to us as we might to our own infants. It's baby talk. The same with that anthropopathic language. It's not that God changes his mind. He can't change. He's immutable. But from our perspective, that's what it seems like. And so we need then to distinguish between God in himself, that is, the imminent trinity of who he is in his being and his essence, and of what God does according to his covenant of redemption to create and redeem for himself a people. That would be an economic trinity. And so we see the Father plays a certain role and the Son plays a certain role and the Spirit plays a certain role. If you want to read more about that, you can read through Ephesians 1. It's a glorious description of it. 
And yet we look at all of that and we push that back then into the essence of God and we say, well, look at the way that the Son submits to the Father in His incarnation. Therefore, it must be the case that the Son submits eternally to the Father. Friends, that is outside of Orthodox Christianity. This is why this particular paragraph for these and many other errors begins not with what God does in redemption and creation, but of who God is. That's where we have to begin. And when we consider the doctrine of simplicity and its impact on the doctrine of the Trinity here in a couple of weeks, and I keep saying a couple of weeks because spring break is next week and Tuesday's off, so we won't be here. But we're going to come back after considering the whole chapter. I want to deep dive into a couple of points here, and that's what we're going to consider. Without belaboring the point, knowing that we're going to talk about it later on, I do want to talk about a few more of these of the aspects of this paragraph. So we have there's one God and three subsistences. Three persons sharing fully in the essence of God such that God is not three gods or the one true God is not broken into three pieces like three slices of pie. Each one is truly God. The Father is truly God, the Son is truly God, and the Spirit is truly God. And yet these three persons or subsistences have relative properties and personal relations. It says here that the Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The relative property of the Father is that he is unbegotten and begets. That's what we mean by relative properties. The properties belonging to the Father as he relates internally to the other subsistences or persons of the Trinity. He is not begotten. He is not of any other person or subsistence. He is the one who begets, and yet the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. It doesn't mean that there was a time when the Son was not. That's why it's important to say not merely that the Son is begotten, but that the Son is eternally begotten. Insofar as you cannot have a father without a son, and no son can be a son without a father, therefore an eternally begotten son requires an eternally begotten father. An eternal father requires an eternal son such that as long as there has always been the father, there has always been the son. So there is no time in which the son was not. He is eternal, just as the father is eternal, and yet he is begotten of the father, sharing of the father's essence. It says, finally, here, the Holy Spirit uses a different language. The relative property here, the father being unbegotten yet begetting, the son being begotten, here it says, the Holy Spirit proceeds. The language of Nicaea is spirated, breathed out from the Father and the Son. And yet, notice what it says. Here's the summary. The Father is eternally unbegotten. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. And all of them are infinite, without beginning. Therefore, but one God who is not to be divided in nature and being as if the Father has some of this nature, the Son has a little bit of this nature, and the Spirit has a little bit of this nature, the Father being the just and wrathful one, but the Son being the loving one, every person or subsistence possesses the full essence or godness of God in that subsistence such that it cannot be divided in nature and being. Can we just recognize for a moment that there is something mysterious? If there wasn't anything that we've discussed up to this point that convinced you of the incomprehensibility of God, I hope this has done it. And it's not something that we are to debate. It's not something that you and I are to scrutinize. It is something that we are to receive by faith. And it's meant to lead us to worship. That's why it says in our spiritual application, the doctrine of the Trinity then is the foundation of all our communion with God and our comfortable dependence upon him. To that end, just consider then, as I pointed out earlier, Ephesians chapter 1. Considering our communion with God and our comfortable dependence upon God. And we'll conclude with this and open up for questions. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Our salvation is a triune salvation. Our gospel is a triune gospel of the Father designing, the Son building, and the Spirit giving life. The Apostle Paul takes everything that he just wrote in Ephesians 1 and he puts it in miniature in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and our comfortable dependence upon him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, for the way that it has been faithfully summarized here in this confession. God, I pray that it would lead us into greater awe as we aim to know you more truly, even if we can't understand you fully. We thank you that you have saved us for your glory. We confess that we are completely dependent upon you and ultimately accountable to you, though you are not in one whit dependent upon us to be who you are. And that is great hope to us. We would be a people without any hope, without any assurance, if you were to ever change because of us. And yet even when we were faithless, you were faithful because you cannot deny yourself. We praise you for this in Christ's name. In the power of the Spirit, amen.